Welcome to Growing Your Financial Advisory Practice Podcast by Snap Projections, Episode 10. I'm your host, Pavel Bramensky, and my goal is to interview experts to provide you with insights, strategies, and actionable tactics that you can start applying to grow your financial advisory practice today. For more information, head over to snapprojections.com slash podcast. Now, let's introduce today's featured guest. Today's guest is John DeGuy. John is Portfolio Manager with Industrial Alliance Securities, an author, and a Canadian authority on professional, transparent, and evidence-based financial advice. In 2003, John released his book, The Professional Financial Advisor, and is currently working on another book, which I'm sure we'll talk more about on the show, and has been a frequent commentator and writer on financial matters for a number of major national media sources. John has received multiple awards for his contributions to financial planning, including the coveted Donald J. Johnston Award, and has been recognized as a fellow of FPSC. And in 2014 and 15, Wealth Professional Magazine named him one of the top 50 advisors in Canada. John, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Pavel. John, I'm super excited to have you on because uh, we'll be talking about a topic that is very dear to my heart, which is the projection assumptions that advisors uh, use to provide uh, financial advice for their clients. Uh, But before we do that, let's start with your firm. What do you do and who do you serve? I'm a portfolio manager. I started off in the business almost 25 years ago in September of 1993 uh, and worked my way sort of uh, sequentially from commission-based mutual funds to wrap accounts to fee-based programs using uh, ETFs and funds and and so forth to being fully discretionary about uh, seven or so years ago is when I moved to become a portfolio manager. Uh, I, I have about 100 families in my client base. Uh, I manage about $100 million. So for those of you doing the math at home, that means a typical client has about a million dollars with me. Uh, I, uh, I do holistic uh, financial planning and I serve uh, people across the country uh, through, uh, through my practice. Um, I've, because of my media work, uh, having been on TV and having written articles and books, um, I, I get calls from across the country, and so I probably have 15 or 16 clients that are outside of my home province of Ontario. Wonderful. So it is uh, time to talk about the projection assumptions because uh, the 2018 FPSC projections uh, assumptions guidelines has just been released, uh, I think, as, as of April 30th. So uh, I think it makes sense for us to kind of start listing those key assumptions and for an advisor or planner must determine uh, before developing any financial projections. So let's maybe talk about it. What are the key assumptions an advisor has to determine before developing any financial projections for their clients? So the, the specific numbers in the guidelines are not at the tip of my tongue, but let me see if I can go over what I think are the most important assumptions that people need to think of. Uh, you, you need to assume uh, longevity. How long will people live? And uh, what I'll do is I'll each time I'll sort of say, this is what I use, and different people may use different numbers. I use the age 90. So, and before I go further, I can then say, some people have said, well, you know, women generally live three or four years longer than men. Maybe we should use 88 for men and 92 for women. And that would be a reasonable sort of variation on the theme as as one example. You need to have an assumed rate of uh, inflation. uh, And for the past um, 25 or 30 years, inflation has been running at about 2% in Canada. Historically, the number is uh, about 3%, but uh, central bankers have done a good job of keeping inflation in check. And I don't believe there's any good reason to assume that the 2% that we've experienced over the past quarter century will be uh, materially different from what we experience in the future. So that's the second thing that you have to think about. Uh, and of course, you have to start thinking about, well, what will your savings rate be and, and how much money will you set aside if you're trying to plan for retirement and, and so forth. So um, some people do that as a percentage. Most people do it as a dollar amount. 
But the thing that I think is most important, and this is where the rubber hits the road, is the rate of return that you should be expecting when uh, when you actually do these projections, because um, that will be a massive determinant about uh, in, in with regard to whether or not you have money left over when your when your life ends. Because uh, a difference of uh, even one percent can be massive, and a difference of two or two and a half percent can be staggering in terms of your terminal wealth. Right. So let's talk about those assumptions. What do you think are reasonable assumptions? And how do we uh, come up with those reasonable assumptions about the rates of return? So I'll tell you, I'll begin by telling you what they're not. Um, they're not historical rates of return. Historical rates of return, um, you, you know that every mutual fund prospectus and ad and fund facts and every ETF ad and fund facts will, will carry a disclaimer that past performance may, uh, may not be repeated and should not be relied upon. That's with regard to perhaps an active manager's performance relative to a benchmark. But the same can be said with regard to an asset class's rate of return over a long time horizon. Um, it is not, the, the past is not necessarily prologue for the future. And, and there are a number of reasons why that might be. So, it, so I'll begin by saying that's not what a reasonable assumption is. Uh, rather, you should be looking to experts who have a background in economic modeling, ec- econometrics, and so forth, to uh, provide guidance as to what uh, constitutes a reasonable uh, rate of return uh, and what you should be uh, assuming if you're a reputable planner uh, in helping your clients meet their objectives. So um, I would say that for me, there are three main um, organizations that I would look to. Um, The first is the Financial Planning Standards Council, which as you quite properly uh, uh, pointed out, uh, released their assumption guidelines at the end of April, which is what they do pretty much every year around that time. Uh, the second is um, our, our two main product suppliers, um, Vanguard and BlackRock. Vanguard and BlackRock are two of the largest money managers in the world. And uh, one of the things that they do as part of their um, value-added service for their, their clients and for investors around the world is to do their own due diligence as to what they think reasonable assumptions uh, might be going forward. And although none of them are in complete agreement, all three of them are very close in uh, what they assume and, and, you know, picking any sort of, um, you know, add it up and divide by three sort of thing. Uh, any, any of those uh, numbers uh, will, will help you to get a sense of what's reasonable. I, I, I would be comfortable with any of the three, but when you look at all three of them and realize that they're all close, as long as you use something that's in the ballpark to those organizations, uh, I would be comfortable. Now, notice that I'm talking more so far about principles and I'm not actually using numbers yet. And that's because I want people to, that are listening to the podcast to think about the principle of what it is that we're trying to do before we get into the specifics of actually doing it. Makes sense. Okay, so let's talk about maybe uh, also some of the mistakes that you've seen in industry. So what are the common mistakes or maybe misconceptions that you see advisors uh, make right now and how they would basically misuse uh, or um, really make mistakes around the, the projections assumptions? The, the biggest, and, and this is number one with a bullet, and so I'm not even going to uh, talk about multiple mistakes. I'm going to talk about what I think is by far the single biggest mistake, and that is not incorporating cost into your assumption. Whatever it is that you would expect, whether it's the Financial Planning Standards Council or Vanguard or BlackRock, whatever they are assuming a rate of return for any given asset class for any given time horizon to be, that's the return of the asset class. The asset class doesn't have an MER. The asset class doesn't charge advisory fees. So if whatever the, the, uh, 
projected return is, let's just call it X so that we can go from the general to the specific down the road, uh, you need to, if you are reputable and proper in doing your financial planning, you need to reduce that expectation by the cost of the product and the cost of the advice. And for those people who use mutual funds with embedded compensation, the, the two of them are co cobbled together in one thing called the MER. But you need to take your expected rate of return for any given asset class and back out the MER of the products that you're using to get exposure to that asset class to find an assumed rate of return. And that's actually in the FPSC guidelines as a best practice. And I know very, very few people who actually do that when they do their planning recommendations. Right. And of course, uh, the problem with that is obviously that um, if uh, they would include those, basically, those uh, the cost of product, cost of, cost of advice, then uh, the projections will be less optimistic. That's correct. And uh, so what you call less optimistic, I call more realistic. Uh, I, I don't think it serves anyone's purpose to be unrealistically optimistic. And uh, the whole point of planning is that you're trying to help people determine whether they have enough money to retire on. And if you tell them they're going to have half a million dollars more than they're actually going to have, they might feel good about retiring at age 63. But chances are there are certain fixes that would have been required along the way. They probably should have been saving more and perhaps investing more aggressively. But um, they should also probably have been thinking about you know, retiring later and, uh, or, or accepting a lower lifestyle uh, when they retire. But th those are the sorts of variables that you need to be thinking about and the trade-offs that uh, clients need to be contemplating when they when they look at the projections that are being made by their planners. And it's uh, the, the phrase that people use. I, I used to work in government, Pebble, and I, uh, uh, I sat in on committee hearings. Um, Brian Mulroney, when he was the prime minister, had a, a massive majority that he won after the free trade election in 1988, and that was in graduate school. And um, the Senate Banking Committee had already looked at the, uh, the GST. The, uh, the House Finance Committee had already looked at the GST. But uh, Prime Minister Mulroney had such a large caucus, he didn't know what to do with them all. So he, he struck a, a select committee, an ad hoc committee, to look into the GST from the perspective of consumers. And, you know, would it be inflationary and would it be passed through and various sort of economic modeling that was being done because it was a major public policy consideration at the time. And one of the, um, one of the uh, consultants who was a nationally renowned a uh, person who was giving testimony, I'll never forget uh, the first thing that he said when, when, uh, when being asked these questions is, garbage in, garbage out. And in a nutshell, what that means is uh, any model is only as good as the factor inputs to that model. And if anyone uses assumptions that are uh, unduly optimistic or unrealistic with regard to not taking into account product cost or anything like that, you're going to be getting a garbage output. And if that garbage output is favorable for the client so that the client feels good about himself or herself or themselves, you're not doing them a favor because you're giving them a false sense of confidence and you're whistling past the graveyard and you're telling them they're going to be fine. Whereas if you use more reasonable assumptions, uh, the odds are quite high that they would be considerably less fine. That all makes sense. Of course, it's uh, garbage in and garbage out, as you said, right? So if we're basically making a small you know, or or actually large math mistake right at the outset, right, and then over you know multiple years, multiple decades, that that number is going to compound, and and we're not going to give clients uh, information um, that is realistic. So I'm glad that you pointed out. So so okay. So rates of return. Uh, what other mistakes uh, do you see advisors make? 
Well, I think uh, one of the things that people say that advisors do to add value, and it's and it's often true, but it's certainly not always true because it's very much case by case. It's not the sort of thing which is always correct or always incorrect, is they can engage in behavioral coaching. They can help people to change their behavior, uh, hopefully in a way that leads to a better investment experience, a better, a better outcome. And a lot of advisors are simply enablers, in my opinion, which is to say, the client says, I want to save $5,000 a year. And the client says, great, um, let's, you know, let's set up a, a pre-authorized checking uh, program for whatever, $425 a month or whatever. And uh, we'll, we'll get you to the, uh, to the savings goal of $5,000 a year. Uh, that's all fine and well. But if you run the numbers, you might say, well, actually, uh, Mr. Client, you should be saving $12,000 a year. And instead of saving $425 a month, you should be saving $1,000 a month. A, a good advisor will not just let the client say, oh, this is the amount that I want to save. A good advisor will actually say, actually, sir, if what you're telling me is true, that you want to retire at age 65 with $1.3 million, then what you're going to need to do is uh, you're going to need to change something along the way because what you're doing right now is not going to get you to where you want to go. Um, Perhaps the answer is that you don't really want to go there because you're not prepared to make the sacrifices, and that's fine. But I, as the advisor, don't want to be uh, having you coming back to me 20 or 30 years later saying, I told you when we met back in 1994 that uh, I wanted to retire in 2024 with $1.3 million. And here I am with $860,000. And uh, where's, where's the other, other $460,000? Well, that's because <laughs> you, Mr. Client, weren't, uh, weren't saving enough or weren't investing aggressively enough or, or, or what have you. So the, the mistake that advisors make is that they enable clients to do whatever the client thinks is easy without giving them the reality check of doing what is necessary. And I think a really good advisor will frequently hold clients accountable with regard to a number of things. Also, just you know, not selling at the bottom and having a regular discipline and so forth. But I think um, one of the most obvious things that where an advisor can help a client to be accountable is with regard to their annual savings rate. That makes a lot of sense. So let's talk about maybe how do you do that in your practice? I want to actually dig in a little bit more. So how do you uh, keep your clients accountable? Well, for one thing uh, that I notice is that I have a lot of people who come to me at, say, age at mid-career, at age 45 or 50, and they've been sort of doing what I've been lamenting in the past five or six minutes. They've been sort of saving whatever feels okay, whatever feels right, with no real plan, with no real focus. And they, they show up at my office with uh, $135,000 of unused RRSP contribution that they've been carrying forward, and it's growing. So the first thing that I will tell them is, look, I would like you to try to whittle that number down. But for goodness sake, at the very, very least, you need to commit to not let that number get any bigger. So going forward, you need to save at least 18% of your income in order to to. Um, not have your RSP contribution room get any larger going forward. Now, I, I need to say that 18% is perhaps a bit aggressive for many people, but many of the clients that I work with um, have one or both spouses earning a six-digit income. And when your income is that high, uh, there's seldom, although there are sometimes reasons, but there's seldom a good reason why you can't save 18%, especially if you're in a really high tax bracket, um, if you're a really high earner, you're, you're not even saving 18% because 
as you know, the RSP contribution limit is somewhere around $26,000 a year. If you're earning, say, for instance, $200,000 a year, um, $26,000 is only 13% of your earned income. So holding people accountable is the sort of thing that you need to do. And it's the sort of thing that most people aren't doing on their own. And so they oftentimes need an advisor to help them to, to have the focus and discipline to do what they know in their heart of hearts they should be doing, but for whatever reason, they aren't doing it. Perfect. So you definitely have a conversation with them at the beginning. And as, uh, let's say, as they're thinking about engaging you as an advisor, uh, do you implement this or do you, is this basically part of, part of your agenda for of your I don't know, quarterly uh, semi-annual meetings with clients? Do you bring it up? Is this something that uh, it's always on the forefront for you? How do you, how do you think about it? Well, so first off, I usually meet my clients only once a year. Um, there are one or two who might want to meet two or three times at the beginning because they're getting the account set up. But usually once the account is set up and we've gone through the first year and the additional work that's done in terms of the planning and so forth in year one, uh, it's typically only once a year thereafter. So at that point, it becomes exactly as, as uh, I said a moment ago, it becomes case by case. Some clients are naturally good savers and they don't need to be prodded at all. They're great. They do it on their own. And that's not part of what I'm doing to help them uh, because they can do that on their own and they don't need someone to to remind them or to encourage them to be better savers. They're already good savers. Other people, of course, in contrast, are, are not good savers and they might understand capital markets better and they might understand tax arbitrage and corporate structure and other things better than, than the savers. But for whatever reason, they're not good savers. And so every client is different. And I should also mention that I would expect that most of the planners that you're talking to on the podcast are much like me. They'll probably have one third or maybe even one half of their clients that are already retired. And so it's moot for those clients. They're no longer saving. They're now living off the money that they've saved. So again, it's case by case. So I would say that um, maybe a quarter of my clients need to be reminded on an ongoing basis to save more. So it's not a majority, but it's a large minority within my practice. Excellent. Uh, so let's talk about, uh, let's talk about maybe about those uh, clients who actually are uh, retired and they're actually spending uh, or um, they're, or clients basically are very cl- close to retirement and they're actually thinking about uh, their spending pattern in retirement. So um, I don't see a lot of information in a lot of guidelines, including FPSC guidelines as well, how to model uh, the client spending in retirement. And really, really, the one thing that we've actually noticed when we're developing our software is that client spending, rates of return are really important, of course, but client spending is the one variable that actually makes huge difference, yeah. right? So how do you approach uh, that big topic? Sure. So this is a, a fascinating thing. So you, uh, you may know who Fred Vitesse is, but Fred Vitesse is the chief actuary at Morneau Chappelle. And uh, he and Bill Morneau, before he became minister of finance, uh, wrote a book, uh, four or five years ago called uh, The Real Retirement. And it was uh, a fascinating look into actual data uh, in Canadian households with regard to um, what retirement looks like in Canada. And there are three bits of news that I would say are important when you when you look at them. That are, there are three big takeaways from that book. One of them is one that we've already discussed. Um, people are assuming rates of return that are too high, too high and they should be lowering them and taking costs into consideration. The, number, the second one is that people are living longer and everyone assumes they're going to die when their parents die. But in fact, most people uh, live um, much, much longer than 
that. And if you're assuming that you're going to die at age 80 and you did, you live to be 91, uh, that's an extra 11 years of, re- of, of retirement life that you have to pay for. And you might have been able to live the life of Riley and been totally fine until age 80. And in fact, you might even say, oh, I had enough money to, uh, to last me until age 84. And that's great if you live to be 84. But if you live to be 91, it's a problem. And, and so, uh, so that's the second problem. But the third bit of news, which is the good news, is that uh, old financial planning recommendations were that you needed to have 60 to 80% of your retirement, uh, of, your, of your working income as your income in retirement to maintain uh, uh, the same sort of standard of living. And one of the things that uh, Fred Vitesse has shown and, and others have done this as well. There are, there are a number of actuaries who, who have shown this as well, is that most people can maintain the same quality of life with an income that's about 50%, and in some cases, even less than 50% of what they were earning when they were working and still have the same quality of life. And let me tell you why that is. People have always assumed that what you need to do is to replace income. And that's not technically the accurate way of looking at retirement planning. What you need to think of is replacing uh, your lifestyle costs. And people, when they're working, um, have to raise the family, and they and they have to pay for piano lessons and hockey practice and and uh, braces and so forth. Uh, furthermore, people are going to work, and so they're buying the lunches and they're buying they're they're paying for parking in their go train and they're they're buying a new suit or dress or whatever every every quarter. So there are a lot of expenses that, that are coming up that are, that are coming along. They, they, of course, have a mortgage that they have to pay for. And, and so that's going to be a big drain on their, annual, uh, on their annual income and, in fact, on their weekly or biweekly paychecks. Um, they are generally earning more money, and so they're in a high tax bracket. So more of what they're earning is going to taxes than would be the case in retirement. They have to save for retirement. So there's that $12,000 a year again that you have to put into an RSP that you don't have to put into an RSP when you're retired. So when you back all those things out, you're, you're spending less money on commuting and on clothing and on food and on kids and on housing and everything else. What, what you end up getting is um, a situation where the, what you need to do is just replace your lifestyle. So the lifestyle is what? Your food, um, your, your travel and entertainment, uh, your property taxes on your house, but not your mortgage because you've already paid for your mortgage and not your kids because your kids have already gone through university and left the house and hopefully are out of your basement now that they're 32 uh, and so forth. And so um, what, you, what you end up needing is uh, an income that is probably about half and if you're a really high income earner, maybe even less than half of what you were earning. So if you were earning $100,000 a year as a family, um, you can get by on probably about $50,000 a year in retirement and have the same quality of life. So that's, that's number one. And, and then the second thing that I can talk about in terms of the thing that people can manipulate is when they start taking CBP. So I can talk about that as a separate thing, or I can just keep on going as, with that as another thing that you can think of. Uh, would you like me to keep going or do you keep want to? Keep on going. Keep on going. Okay. So the other thing that uh, I notice is that most people uh, say they want to retire early. And, you know, there, again, there are, you know, only a few variables that you can change when you start planning for your retirement. You can, you can invest the money more aggressively. If you're not going to hit your goal, you can either invest the money more aggressively and try to get a higher rate of return by having more exposure to equities and income. You can save more. You can retire later or you can just consign yourself to a lower quality of life when you retire. And in terms of what's actually doable, um, most people, the most doable thing is either retiring later or saving more. 
And seeing as we're all going to be living longer, I think retiring later is the sort of thing that that doesn't get enough attention. Uh, I personally, I enjoy my work. I personally intend to work until I'm 70. So here's the thing. If you're, if you're retiring later, or even if you retire, say, at the traditional, so-called traditional age of 65, a lot of people think, well, I, I can take my CPP at age 65 and I'm retired, so that makes sense. Actually, given how long people are living, um, the, the, uh, the cost of retiring early is uh, six-tenths of 1% per month if you take for every month before your 65th birthday that you start taking CPP, or you get a bonus of an additional seven-tenths of 1% per month if you defer uh, when you start taking your CPP. So if you think of seven-tenths of 1% uh, per month, that's 8.4% per year. So, Pavel, where else can you get a guaranteed 8.4% annualized rate of return with no risk? It's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. <laughs> it's going to be impossible. So uh, everyone is looking at it as a, as a layup here. This is so easy. You can get an extra rate of return, but people say, oh, I, I don't want to take money out of my RRSP. I don't want to convert my RSP to a RIF. So if I want to supplement my income, what I'm going to do is I want to take money out of my CPP. What you should be doing is, is um, converting your RSP to a RIF even sooner and waiting as long as possible for people who are going to live beyond age 82 or 83 in absolute dollars, it makes complete sense to wait until the last possible moment and not and not start taking CPP until your 70th birthday. And that's an easy thing. That's a mistake that almost everyone makes. Obviously, if you think you're not going to last to age 82, then it might make sense to take your CPP early. But for the vast majority of people, it makes sense to take CPP as late as possible. And only a very small percentage, we're talking maybe, I don't know, Five, six percent of all Canadians actually wait until their seventieth birthday before they start collecting CPP. It makes a lot of sense to actually do that, and you know, I'm, uh, I'm assuming that the same logic will actually apply to OIS as well, and it's going to actually help you to avoid OIS clawback. Yeah. And you know, if you run projections, and it, it's uh, it's absolute no brainer because if you delay CPP and uh, an OIS until until seventy. Uh, basically, then uh, you are going to in, the difference on your estate is ma- is going to be massive. The problem is, as you said, that uh, and the thing is, we're going to most people will will live longer, which which makes which would make a lot of sense. The problem is that some some of them actually may live a little shorter, and that you need supplementary your income when you're deferring your CPP from you know from let's say sixty or sixty five to seventy, right? So mm-hmm. um, so that's that. These are the considerations. But of course, if you are going to live longer, and then mathematically, it's a you know it it's, it makes a lot of sense to actually defer CPP, both CPP and OIS. So, yeah. okay, so I, let's focus a little bit more on so the, on the client spending. I'm really interested in that because the thing is, you know, when it comes to projections, um, I think about retirement projections really as an estimation science, right? It's it's not your asset mix is going to change tomorrow, right? There's a lot of things that is going to change very quickly. But the thing is, uh, you want to make sure that your assumptions are accurate, so, which means that they're not too high and they're not too low. Mm-hmm. So the other thing is that comes up, and I wanted I wanted you to speak about uh, that as well. I've seen a lot in a lot of cases um, uh, the client spending is going to differ, and there will be this sort of active retirement uh, uh, phase. And maybe passive retirement phase, maybe let's say between 65, let's, if, let's say somebody retires at 65, all the way until 75, maybe even 80, they will be spending a little bit more. And then let's say 75, 80 uh, plus, they will be spending a little less. Do you see those kind of uh, things happening with um, your clients? Have you seen this something, something like this in the industry? Yes, uh, I, I absolutely do. And I've seen a lot of research that shows that very few people travel significantly once they turn 80. Uh, and there are a whole number of reasons there. Uh, obviously, um, access to healthcare, uh, need to be close to home. Uh, some people are just not mobile enough and, 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 
and so forth. So those expenses almost always drop. The, 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 the cost of um, leisure activity and, and just having fun uh, drops because people, once they reach a certain age, are just almost too old to have fun the way they used to. Um, the other thing that, that you may wish to consider that, that would offset that, of course, is healthcare costs. Um, sometimes healthcare, um, a lot of people spend, I think I've seen studies that have shown that, that, uh, the healthcare system in Canada spends as much money on keep, keeping people alive in the last six months of their lives as it does in their entire lifetime prior to the last six months of their lives. So, um, and many things are paid for obviously through the system, but to the extent that you have to pay out of pocket for certain things, um, that's going to be a drain on your on your uh, financial resources. So there's a trade-off there, but uh, I think as a general rule, uh, assuming that you're not unduly healthy, uh, unhealthy, and that you have a normal lifestyle, um, then absolutely most people's spending uh, drops even further somewhere around the late 70s and early 80s. Perfect. So uh, that's I think enough about client spending. So we talked about longevity assumptions as well. Let's go back for a second to rates of return and maybe think about tax as well. So, and maybe look at the asset allocation. So, is there something that you can do, especially maybe help reduce tax in, in terms of the asset allocation that you can actually help clients and maybe essentially give them, uh, provide them with you know, better return by paying less tax? Yeah. So, here's, here's a great um, uh, sort of thought exercise that you might want to go to because we still haven't talked about what rates of return we should be assuming. Um, but if you are a thoughtful planner and if you are trying to help your clients have the best uh, investment outcome, one thing that you should do is you should run models based on asset location. So are we going to have the stocks in the registered accounts or are we going to have them in the taxable accounts? Are we going to have the bonds in the registered accounts or in the taxable accounts? Or maybe we're indifferent because the difference uh, one way or the other is is not particularly massive. Uh, I have to um, help people to understand that that they have choices to make. And uh, one of the things that I have as a benefit is that as a discretionary portfolio manager is that I can, when it comes to asset location, make those decisions for them. So where the rubber hits the road is, what rate of return are you assuming for different asset classes? And then since these different asset classes have different tax consequences, where will you hold them? And what I think is interesting, uh, Jamie Gollenbeck of, uh, of CIBC Renaissance uh, has run numbers, and he's shown fairly compellingly that under the current environment, um, a good case can be made for keeping your bonds in your taxable accounts and your stocks in your registered accounts. And that's extremely counterintuitive. And uh, once again, garbage in, garbage out. So the the the, the fulcrum will shift and the and the... Uh, the the preference will go one way or the other depending on um, well what you assume and ultimately on what's realized. Um, but if you use what I believe are reasonable assumptions, I believe a a good case can be made for what might otherwise be called reverse tax optimization because most people put their their bonds in their taxable accounts and their stocks in, the, in their bonds in their registered accounts and their stocks in their taxable accounts. So the the rationale is simple, as you know. Um, Stocks, uh, if they're Canadian dividend-paying stocks, will will get the benefit of the dividend tax credit, but other stocks uh, will be taxed as a capital gain, and even then only when sold. Capital gains are taxed at a 50% inclusion rate. So if you have a, pick a a number, let's say a a bond that would pay you, say, 2%, 
and a stock uh, investment that will pay you 6 or 7 6 or 7% compounded over 20, 30, 35 years will grow way, way more than the 2% growth. And you'd be better to pay uh, the tax at a 100% inclusion on the 2% in your taxable uh, account so as to defer, uh, as to, to avoid paying the 50% inclusion tax on the much, much larger growth that you would have in your equity investments. So that's counterintuitive. And it depends on the assumptions that you use. But I would say that most people, if they use reasonable assumptions and plug them into the model, will actually find that they're better off with their bonds and their taxable accounts and their stocks and their registered accounts. Right. And uh, you know what? This is very interesting, too, because the thing is, in a lot of those kind of assumptions, maybe newspaper headlines, sometimes you see those uh, those kind of rules of thumb. And the, the thing is, every client is a little different. Their tax situation, they may not be in the highest tax bracket paying, you know, in Ontario, 53% over just 53% uh, on, on, on their last dollar. Um, but uh, it's really important to actually make sure that whenever you see this kind of advice, you actually plug it in, as you said, in the model and run and compare and, and, and see what it makes sense for, for this particular client. So I'm assuming that will be the part of good business, good practice for advisors too. Yes. So can we talk now about actual rates of return? Yes, I think we're ready to do that. I think we're ready to. And, and it's great that we've gone on for however long, over half an hour, uh, talking sort of uh, about uh, generic principles. And I think it's really important that your listeners understand what the principles are first, because a lot of people, I'm sure, are tuning in and they're hoping in the first three or four minutes to hear what rates of returns they should be assuming. And we've sort of made them wait and listen to all the principles that have to be applied first and the thought processes that they have to go through before they get to the actual numbers. And I think that's actually helpful because otherwise people might listen to the first five minutes of the podcast, get what they want, and and then say, okay, that's good. And and they're done. So now that we've gone through this, um, let's, again, the the different providers, once again, to recap, the Financial Planning Standards Council and IQPF, the... uh, Institute de Qualification de Province Financière de Quebec put out their assumption guidelines annually, typically at the end of April. Uh, and then other organizations such as Vanguard and BlackRock also put them out annually, typically also in the first quarter. And uh, all three of them are using uh, uh, return guidelines that are, first off, they tend to use nominal rates of return. And you need to always distinguish, are we talking about nominal rates or real rates? The real rate is the rate above inflation if inflation is 2%, then as an example, if, if inflation is 2% and your nominal rate is 6%, then your real, re, your real return is 4 You're getting 4% above inflation. So that's an important way of looking at it because even though you're getting a 6% rate of return, you're only increasing your purchasing power by 4% because the cost of stuff, gas, food, um, taxes, whatever else is also going up by 2% per year. And, and as a result of that, uh, your purchasing power is only growing by four, even though your portfolio is growing by six. So with that uh, little caveat out of the way, the, the consensus is that bonds are bonds and GICs and income of, of various sorts have a real return of anywhere from zero to one and a half percent. So that's um, zero to one and a half percent above inflation. If inflation is two, that means two to three and a half percent in total nominal returns on your income. And to be honest, I think the 1.5% real, which is the the 3.5% nominal, is unduly optimistic. And again, that's before we're talking about the cost of products and the cost of advice. If you have a 0% real return on income, and then that's before you plug in the cost of products and advice, it's entirely possible. And in fact, I would say probable 
that your real return on income will be negative. I don't want to scare the listeners, but I'm telling you, that's what a reputable planner should be telling you because that's what the evidence shows. With regard to equity, um, there's a consensus that a real return should be typically anywhere from about um, three to maybe uh, five and a half or six percent at the absolute most uh, percent above inflation. So again, that's a five to eight percent nominal return. Um, and so a balanced portfolio, say um, 60, 40, 60 percent stocks and 40 percent in, in, in income uh, might have a real return before costs of about three percent. So if inflation is two, then your return is five before product costs. And if you have products that cost you and, and advice that costs in, in aggregate 2%, your real return goes from 3% real to 1% real. And that's a bit of a white knuckle sort of concern that most people are not thinking of. And almost everyone I know is making plans based on assumptions that are pie in the sky optimistic and there is quite possibly a crisis coming in Canada and around the world because people are assuming rates of return that are simply too high. So I'm looking at the uh, FPSC IQPF guidelines right now. And actually, short term, uh, this is 2.9. Mm-hmm. Short term return rate of return, fixed income 3.9. And, the, and equities all the way from 6.4 to 7.4. Canadian equities lower and emerging market equities higher. Right. So I was always very interested in seeing this, uh, basically, the uh, short term 2.9. That's very high. And you know, I think a lot of people, when they see these numbers, they see that this is, they think about, well, they look at GSTs, they look at uh, basically what, they, what their clients can get right now, and they see, well, this is not near, this is not even close, right? I agree. So I think it's a good also idea to point out that these are very long-term uh, projections, right? Long-term, medium-term, I guess, or long-term projections. Um, how would you approach this, or how do you think about uh, maybe adjusting those guidelines to uh, different clients? So, for example, pe- clients, for example, that live in the GTA or maybe Vancouver, just due to the real estate prices being so elevated, may have different considerations and may be uh, able to, or not able to save enough money for retirement, right? But maybe their their uh, their home equity is going to be part of it. Um, and uh, also, how do you how do you plan for people that maybe their horizon for investing is I don't know maybe it's between uh, you know let's say three to three to five years right versus let's say 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Right, there's a lot there. So I don't I don't I will use a moderate mid tier number for assumed rates of return for real estate uh, when people ask us to put that into their models. Some people rent and some people say, well, I'm gonna they're gonna carry me out of my house in a box and so don't. Uh, don't don't count the equity in my home as part of my modeling. Just uh, figure out how much I can have by way of liquid assets between my my workplace pension and my CBP and OAS and what I've saved privately and whatever else maybe you know rental income if you have a rental property and that sort of thing. Um, so I don't I I don't change my return assumptions for real estate depending on whether you're living in Vancouver or Moose Jaw. Um, I suppose I could. Um, no one has ever asked me to, and uh, I just use. And, and there's no real reason why Vancouver should do better than Moose Jaw going forward, notwithstanding the fact, again, just getting back to the um, past performance is not indicative, given how rapidly Vancouver and Toronto have grown uh, with regard to real estate prices in the past uh, couple of decades, um, that might actually mean that those markets are overheated and that their markets return, their market return for those real estate markets might actually be lower in the future simply because they may have overshot. I'm not saying that, they, that that's what will happen. I'm simply saying that that's 
one argument that could be made. And as a result of my not wanting to uh, speculate as to whether the markets are um, are going to continue as they have in the past or, or higher or lower, I don't change my real estate assumptions depending on whether you live in Vancouver or Moose Jaw. Um, what, what else were you asking? There was another part of the question that I wanted to respond to and I can't recall. The other um, thing is, this is this kind of a short-term uh, yeah, short yeah. outlook versus long-term outlook. So most people... Um, most people will have an investment policy statement, uh, and, and that will just be a written document that actually codifies uh, your allocation towards stocks and bonds, among other things. And uh, advisors in general, and, and people like me, portfolio managers in particular, are allowed uh, 10% wiggle room. So if you have a 60-40 portfolio, 60% in stocks and 40% in bonds, you could be as aggressive as 70-30 or as conservative as 50-50 and still be compliant because markets are changing every day. So one of the things that I will tell people is if they have a a short to medium-term time horizon, that they should tilt toward the conservative end of the range. So a 60-40 portfolio might be closer to 50-50 if your time horizon is only three or four or five years. even that might be unduly aggressive because if you're looking at buying a house in three or four or five years and you've got a house fund set up, I can make a very strong case that you shouldn't have any of that money in equity because you need it. And perhaps the biggest risk that you have is if, you've, if you want to save $100,000 for a down payment and then the quarter before you're ready to put your down payment down, um, equity markets tumble by 30% and your 100000 becomes $70,000. Um, that's material in, in terms of your ability to plan your life. And you might be better off just having slow, steady gains, but maybe it takes you an extra year or year and a half to save the money. But you'll, you'll know that when that year or year and a half is up, that you will actually have enough money. Of course, assuming that real estate prices are, are not materially changed along the way either, which is another assumption that uh, people might, uh, might say is, needs to be thought about. Uh, I would say that with regard to real estate in particular, it's one of those things where it's a bit of a moving target because even as you save more, the price of the home goes up as well. And and it's sort of like you never quite get to where you need to go. Uh, a lot of Canadians, I think, need to rethink the the dream of being a homeowner as a result. I think a lot of people, especially millennials and, and Gen Gen X and Gen, Gen Y people, at least, um, for many of them, home ownership will be out of reach uh, at, at least in the conventional sense, they might be able to own a home when when mom and dad or grandma and grandpa pass away and leave them uh, half a million dollars so they can get their down payment. But until such time that the uh, money ch- changes hands from one generation to the next, it'll be much more difficult for traditional first-time home buyers to buy homes now than it has been uh, at any time in the post-World War II era. And of course, if, you, if they decide to purchase a real estate that purchase a home right now, that's going to massively impact their ability to save. Yeah. So, uh, so those uh, those kind of uh, uh, this is going to swing both ways. So, uh, John, I know you've been working on a new book, and I'm really curious to hear you a little bit more. Can you tell us a little bit more about your new book? Yeah. So, uh, just to to remind your listeners, uh, I wrote a book as you mentioned in the intro called The Professional Financial Advisor in 2003, and I updated it when there were regulatory changes. So, I updated it in 2006 when the fair dealing model. Uh, was released, and then in 2012 with the so-called CRM one, in 2016 with the so-called CRM two, which is the various phases of the uh, re- uh, client relationship model uh, that regulators were putting out. So I've decided that I'm not going to update that book a fifth time. <laughs> enough is enough. 
Uh, and I've realized that I have to do a bit of a mea culpa, that I have to acknowledge that I've been barking up the wrong tree, I think, all these years. And I, I started working on the book at the turn of the millennium. Uh, up until now, uh, I've been advocating for professionalism in the financial services industry, which is basically greater transparency, uh, peer review, best practices, uh, a best interest standard, a uh, high level of proficiency, um, and so forth. So those are the sorts of things that I've been arguing for, and those are the sorts of things that I'm known for within the industry, uh, a bit of a, 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 an agitator for change to convert what has heretofore been a sales-cultured industry into a bona fide profession the way law, medicine, and accounting are already accepted as professions. So I'm trying to move my industry into professional status. So that's what I've been doing uh, in my books until now. The new book has the working title, Be Serious. And Be Serious will be um, shortened to BS. Because what I'm doing is I'm calling BS on the industry. There was a paper that was released in November of 2016 by three different uh, American researchers, which was groundbreaking because it was called The Misguided Beliefs of Financial Advisors. And it showed, beyond any reasonable doubt, that the things that we've been talking about, uh, advisors that can help ostensibly help their clients uh, achieve their financial goals by providing focus and discipline and, and doing all the things that have been shown five ways till Friday to be important, managing costs, managing taxes, integrating uh, elements of their financial planning considerations. All of those things are things that uh, financial advisors say they do, but when you test what financial advisors actually do, they do all the things that the research says you're not supposed to do. They chase returns. They use high-cost products. They, um, they concentrate unduly on things that they think are going to be um, hot in the future. So what we have is we have now a disconnect where everyone knows what ought to be done. Even the advisors know what ought to be done. But there are many advisors who themselves don't do what the research shows they ought to be doing. And so the research is very clear advisors aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. The question that it begs and, and what the book will, will delve into is, well, why is that? So, so a lot of the uh, reasons are, are bound to be behavioral. Um, why do uh, advisors engage in hurting? Why do advisors engage in groupthink? Uh, why is there confirmation bias in, in the recommendations being made by financial advisors? Because up until now, we've always assumed that if we just eliminate the bias of embedded compensation and improve advisor proficiency and force them to, to work to their client's best interests, that investors will have a better outcome. And all of those things are true. I'm not saying that that's not true. I'm not trying to, to disavow what I've spent uh, 17 or 18 years working on. What I'm saying is that all of those things are perhaps secondary and marginal in the grand scheme of things and quite possibly the most determinative factor in helping clients have a positive uh, investment experience is to change advisor attitudes to get advisors to actually internalize the research which is shown five ways till Friday that to work um, so that uh, advisors actually do what they know they should be doing. Let me give you an example from a bygone era. In 1964, the U.S. Surgeon General came out with a report that showed unequivocally that cigarette smoking caused cancer. The linkage was undeniable, and it caused shockwaves. And it caused shockwaves, uh, obviously, for the tobacco industry. It caused shockwaves for the uh, very high percentage of the population around the developed world that was smoking at the time. 
but it really, really caused shockwaves for doctors. Uh, and the reason for that is simple. Doctors were the professional intermediaries between the product and the end user patient, just as financial advisors are the intermediaries between investment products and their end user clients. And now we have a situation where there is a smoking gun of evidence that shows that many doctors that were themselves smokers, it's, it's well known that, that a very large percentage of physicians were smokers prior to that report coming out in 1964. And these physicians would say, oh, cigarette smoking is good. It, it, it reduces obesity because you, you know, it's better to, to, uh, to smoke a cigarette than it is to eat a hamburger. Or, uh, or it, uh, it reduces stress. And, and, and so there were a whole number of different narratives that were being bandied about in the 1950s and early 60s that would have caused people to say that cigarette smoking was at, at a minimum benign and quite possibly even quite possibly favorable and might even have favorable outcomes. So here comes the Surgeon General in 1964 and says, uh-uh, this is bad. It is unambiguously bad for you if you smoke cigarettes. It's bad for you if you are subjected to secondhand smoke. It's bad for you if you, and uh, later research, if you are pregnant in your smoke and, and so forth. So now the doctors are caught. They're the intermediaries that have up until now been oftentimes telling their clients, their patients that, um, oh, it's fine. There's no harm. Now they have evidence that shows that actually there is harm. So the question that it begs is, well, what will the doctor do? And a lot of doctors uh, at first were really conflicted. They didn't want to come to terms with their own fallibility and, and admit that they themselves had been giving bad advice to their patients who they, they care about. I mean, doctors you know, they take the Hippocratic oath, they, they, they mean well, they want to do what's right, but, you know, what, what, does, what does a human being do when they want to do the right thing, but they've been caught, perhaps inadvertently, doing the wrong thing? And what was required, of course, was for advisors to sort of do, a, for doctors to do a mea culpa, to admit that what they were doing was wrong, to take responsibility, and to change their behavior, and to change their advice. They need to change their behavior, which is to say, if, they're, if you're a doctor who smokes, you need to give up smoking right away, but you also need to hold your patients accountable and tell them that they have to give up smoking. And of course, smoking is addictive and it's not that easy and so on and so forth. So it's a direct parallel to what's going on right now. The evidence that cost correlates negatively to performance has been in existence since at least the 1970s. Uh, the evidence that past performance doesn't doesn't uh, have any impact on future performance has been around since at least the 1960s. The evidence with regard to diversification and whatnot probably goes back even further. Harry Markowitz won the Nobel uh, for his work on modern, portfolio, modern portfolio theory based on research that he did in the 1950s. So some of these things, we, we literally have one and in some cases two generations worth of evidence uh, showing that these things are bad for you, and yet ad advisors do it, and they don't, not only do they do it, they do it, they recommend their clients to do it, they even do it themselves, which is sort of like a, a physician that, that smokes in spite of the evidence that smoking is bad for you. So we really, really have to come to terms as an industry with our own limitations and our own past poor behavior and our own ongoing poor behavior and we need to take steps to rectify it immediately because it's been going on for too long. 
I'm really interested in your findings in this book because um, I've seen a lot of evidence of behavioral finance applied on clients, but not to advisors. So this is going to be great. And so the book is coming out in what, late uh, 2008? Late 2018, yes. Late 2018. Perfect. Wonderful. So, John, before we wrap up, let's go to the last question. So this podcast is all about growing your practice. Uh, do you have any parting words of wisdom for the listeners? Well, one thing I would say is if, if you are looking for a financial advisor, you probably would do well to read my book, The Professional Financial Advisor 4. I've got a chapter near the end of the book with about two, uh, almost two dozen questions that you should be asking. And a lot of advisors um, will, will, will give you uh, answers that sound good, but people don't really know how to ask the right questions. And, uh, the people over at Quest Trade are actually running an ad campaign, uh, which says, ask tough questions. And of course, I couldn't agree more that People who are looking for, for financial advisors need to ask tough questions. The problem is that even if you tell them, even if they get themselves steeled up to ask the tough questions, they don't actually know what questions to ask. And then furthermore, they don't know how to determine um, what, what a good answer is. So let me give you an example. Uh, with regard to what we've been talking about today, um, a good question that a, that a person might want to ask a financial advisor is, what kind of a rate of return should I reasonably expect? And my point to the listeners here, and this is where I hope you're sitting down, probably the most reputable advisor is the one who gives you the lowest number because most advisors are predisposed to saying, oh yeah, we can get you seven and a half or 8% and that's no problem. That's on a balanced portfolio, Mr. Jones and uh, Mrs. Jones. And, and no, that's, that's just unreasonable. You're not gonna get that kind of a return. I, I think you as, an, as a client, would be much better served working with an honest person who uses reasonable assumptions than a person who is basically a charlatan, even if they're unwittingly a charlatan, they're still a charlatan using numbers that are way too high and making you feel all warm and fuzzy inside, but not helping you actually reach your retirement goals. So that's sort of what I think people should be focusing on. With regard to me, uh, I can tell people how to reach me if they want. Um, you can follow me on Twitter, uh, Again, my name is spelled D-E-G-O-E-Y. So I'm at, uh, at uh, uh, John Degui underscore IAS, which is Industrial Alliance Securities, the firm that I work for. Um, you can um, order my book, The Professional Financial Advisor, on Amazon. And if you want to reach me, uh, you can uh, drop me a line. Uh, my, my direct line here in Toronto is 416-216-6588. And I have a toll-free number for people outside of Canada, outside of outside of Ontario, outside of uh, the city, uh, 1-866-269-7773. You'll have to get my extension. My extension is number 206588. So I think that would be uh, enough to, to get a hold of me one way or the other. Wonderful. John, thank you very much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thank you very much. And that's it for this episode. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at podcast at snapprojections.com. And if you're enjoying the show and want more of the amazing guests sharing incredibly valuable knowledge, head over to iTunes and leave us a great review, which helps us get discovered. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.